Welcome to the Q Podcast Show, where we discuss ideas, innovations, and thought leadership in frontier areas such as AI, machine learning, and finance. In this masterclass, Stefan shows how to create synthetic time series data using generative adversarial networks. GANs train a generator and a discriminator network in a competitive setting so that the generator learns to produce samples that the discriminator cannot distinguish from a given class of training data. The goal is to yield a generative model capable of producing synthetic samples representative of this class. In today's session, we are joined by Stefan Jansen in a talk on synthetic data generation in finance. Now on to Sri Krishnamurthy, the host of the show. Welcome to the the fifth week of the Quant University Fall School, and we are very pleased to have Stephen Jansen, CFA, who is going to be presenting on synthetic data generation. I'm a big admirer of your work, Stephen, and um, it, it's also a pleasure to kind of see someone who is not only kind of having the experience in the financial services, but also has taken time to author a wonderful book and sharing his knowledge on how do we actually implement these technologies. And as we mentioned before, synthetic data generation is uh, something which has taken uh, the industry by, uh, you know, there's a lot of intrigue about like what synthetic data generation is and how do we actually implement these technologies. And with uh, generative uh, adversarial networks and uh, VAEs and deep learning and a lot of different methodologies, the traditional statistical methodologies of forecasting has been, uh, you know, uh, augmented with some of these newer methodologies. So we would love to have uh, uh, Stefan about, talk about like, how do we think about synthetic data generation? And, and uh, Stefan has really put a lot of time in putting together a very good example on his GitHub page. And we have had the uh, pleasure of uh, putting that on the Q Academy. So I'm gonna share a couple of things before we get started. Uh, for people who don't know uh, us, you know, we are Quant University, we're based out of Boston, and uh, we are focused on the intersection of data science, machine learning, and quantitative finance. Uh, we have done a lot of work in the industry and also uh, since COVID-19 uh, hit, we have been taking these workshops in an online mode. And we have consistently had you know, more than 15 sessions uh, on various themes and topics, primarily the intersection of data science, machine learning, and quantitative finance. And uh, we have, uh, this is the fifth lecture of the series, and we have many more lectures to come, focusing on machine learning, scalable AI, governance, and some FinTech-related topics. And uh, we are also now gearing up for the winter school and we are offering many courses. Uh, one is a data science course, machine learning course, uh, a model risk management course, a synthetic data generation and stress testing course, a FinTech bootcamp, anomaly detection. So if these are topics of interest and uh, you are planning to augment your knowledge, please do consider applying to the qwinterschool.splashthat.com and we will share more details as it becomes available. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce the speaker of today. Uh, Stephen Jansen has the author of the book, Machine Learning for Algorithmic Trading. Um, and that's one of the best books I've read in the context of implementation and how do you actually uh, take these concepts and then apply it in practice using Python. And uh, Stefan is not only uh, an author, but he has, uh, a company called Applied AI, where he consults with various Fortune 500 companies and builds end-to-end -end machine learning systems. 
he has a lot of uh, experience working at fintechs, large banks, including the World Bank, and uh, has a rigorous background. You know, he's got a computer science background and also economics background, and he's also a CFA charter holder. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you uh, present at our uh, fall school here, Stefan. And uh, I'm going to stop presenting and make you the presenter, and you can uh, share your screen now. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sri, uh, for having me and for the kind intro. Let's move over to my screen, to the browser where we have all the good stuff. Uh, thank you, everybody, for, for joining. So you should now be able to see my browser with also the presentation up. If you can, just please let me know in the chat. Um, so yeah, so again, thank, thanks everybody for, for joining uh, about this for this presentation, which is really going to talk about one of the chapters in my book, which S3 was kind to mention. Here it is, it's a big book with a bunch of things in there. One of the chapters uh, covers generative adversarial networks and uh, synthetic data. Uh, looks like today you can't write a book without talking about these things. Um, I noticed uh, some folks in the audience that I've interacted with uh, around the book in the past. So uh, you're in a special welcome. Everybody else, uh, of course, I encourage to take a look uh, at the content of the book. There's a website for the book at mlfortrading.io that has you know, lots of chapter summaries and also links to the GitHub repo that has around 150 notebooks that cover a bunch of different topics uh, from how you get the data, how you um, generate uh, or create different machine learning models to uh, pr create predictive signals and backtest uh, strategies that use these um, signals to hopefully produce a, a profit in the end. And there's a part on natural language processing. And then in the end, there's six, seven chapters on deep learning, which is what we talk about today, about one of them, right? So to get, a, <clears throat> to get up to uh, speed quickly here, we'll, I'll very briefly introduce generative adversarial network. I'm generally assuming you, you've heard this before, so it's more like a quick reminder. Uh, and then move on to the topic of the day, which is why would synthetic data be helpful for finance? And then more specifically, how could we actually generate them? So I'm going to use uh, replicate the paper that was presented at Europe's last year that gives an interesting new type of architecture that's somewhat complex, uh, but interesting because it really focuses on uh, reproducing the uh, stepwise transitions um, that you know autoregressive time series tend to exhibit. And um, we'll see how we can implement this in TensorFlow. And then we can also take a look at how we could evaluate the results produced by such a network. So let's get started. Uh, I would encourage you to uh, throw any questions you may have throughout in chat. I'm looking at it occasionally, so uh, please don't hesitate if anything is unclear or if I'm speaking too quickly or the other issues, you know, just bring this up right away. So generative adversarial networks, of course, you know, have been all the rage uh, for uh, the last five, six years. Uh, Ian Goodfellow came up with them in 2014, uh, of course, with some co-authors. Uh, as you've seen on the previous slide, Yandere Kuhn I was very excited by the idea. And you know, the idea is, uh, as you can see in the architecture below, uh, to have two networks compete uh, so that one network learns to generate samples from some population of data in a way that for another web network, it's really not possible to discriminate between a real sample from that population and one generated by this 
generator network, right? And the fascinating thing is that the generator really learns to do this from random noise inputs, right? So they compete in a sort of game theoretic setting. It's a Minimax uh, kind of setup and um, they simultaneously train. And of course there are challenges as always with neural network to train them properly, but it has been shown to produce uh, stunning results in quite a few different areas over the last several years. And the initial um, uh, paper, you know, triggered a wave of research as you've certainly heard and seen and read probably. I think by 2018, there were like over 500 different GAMs that had been published. And you've seen all the results from, you know, the fake images, later fake videos, uh, to the ability to generate other sources of data like music and, uh, you know, images, uh, produce art and the like. So very wide application. And um, in, I think, 2017, uh, there came an interesting uh, paper that uh, moved into the time series domain and looked at medical data where um, data are often very constrained because you have all sorts of regulation, privacy concerns and the like. Uh, and of course, uh, have more to, to have more training data in this domain would be a very uh, positive feature. So there was a paper that introduced this recurrent conditional GAN architecture that was able to take in uh, real value time series generated by an intensive care unit monitor, you know, these machines that are next to a patient and measure all sorts of, of, of signals and, and metrics. And to um, regenerate these types of, um, of, of metrics in a synthetic way, and then train uh, a model on these synthetic data for to uh, produce an early warning system that would predict if a patient would enter some specific uh, you know, a uh, high alert stage down the road, um, you know, in the near term or medium term. And that worked surprisingly well, which, you know, of course made people think which other time series domains could be really uh, benefit from synthetic data. And of course we're interested in finance. So what about synthetic data for finance? You know, finance, financial data is also somewhat scarce, uh, especially if you compare it to the web scale domains, you know, with the cats on YouTube and, uh, you know, the IoT uh, sensor data and the like, clearly financial data, you know, even though the frequency uh, may be high, there's a limited number of instruments uh, that are being traded worldwide and the history is what it is. And it's not growing exponentially uh, as in, in other areas. So this sort of limited pool of historic data clearly, um, you know, uh, creates some constraints uh, when it comes to designing models, training models on these data to predict uh, you know, returns or the like in the future and also to backtest strategies. So wouldn't it be great if we had a way to sort of create uh, an abundant or uh, unlimited set of uh, historical time series data for subdomain or investment universe of our interest uh, and simply uh, use that to augment the data that's available, right? So that would be really awesome. Maybe we could do this for specific uh, regimes. We could uh, do this for specific sort of volatility regimes that are in place or simulate more data for, for certain, um, um, you know, historic episodes that we would like to backtest our strategies on and so forth, right? So is it possible to do this? And of course, uh, maybe it's not. Maybe time series data is very special in finance, you know, the market dynamic and uh, sort of all the patterns that it creates. Maybe uh, it's just so much harder. So maybe we have to try, right? And thankfully, some have done so. So uh, in 2000 and, um, and 
2019, so last year. Um, Jingson Yoon and co-authors from University of Cambridge, Yoon himself is now at Google, um, came up with a time series GAN that enhanced on some of the architectures that have been discussed before. And um, the goal was to specifically focus on creating a model that uh, as it generates data, synthetic data, that these data really reflect the temporal dynamics. So the transitions from time step to time step, um, both across time and also between the variables, right? So essentially look at sort of the large correlation matrix that exists and try to replicate uh, these patterns and relationships um, uh, as it comes up with synthetic data. So, um, and what's new in this architecture is that it does not only use an adversarial process to uh, train a generator and a discriminator to figure out if certain time series uh, match, you know, the real samples, but it also uses an uh, unsupervised autoencoder that uh, uses an embedding space to create uh, samples. Uh, and it adds a supervised loss that makes sure that the generator also incorporates the patterns that are observed in the real data from time step to time step, right? So you can already get a sense that uh, we saw this um, basic architecture here with two networks, which already is somewhat complex. Uh, now we will get uh, a new beast that is a little um, sort of a step up. And um, here you can see the architecture uh, visualized where you see that we now have two networks with four components. So now we consider the adversarial networks, which has the generator and the discriminator as one network. And then we have an autoencoder on the other side, uh, so on the left side, that um, produces uh, embeddings to project uh, the time series samples into a latent space. And as it does so, there's a supervised loss that uh, constraints or disciplines the generator to produce um, samples that match uh, the, the transitions and the, the time series patterns that we see in the real data. So the logic there is that it may not be enough to simply generate time series and then compare the overall loss uh, you know, between the different time series, but to actually also make sure that at each and every step, we kind of follow the ups and downs and the sequences that we see in real data. So that's kind of the, the assumption and the logic uh, that, we, um, that the authors apply. And uh, thankfully, uh, they made available uh, some sample code in TensorFlow 1. And the contribution of the book is that I basically poured the TF1 to TF2, simplified as much as possible. So that's relatively uh, accessible and easy to not only follow along, but also to build on, right? So the, just like the other things in the book, it's basically um, uh, an, an encouragement for you to kind of take what are often simple approaches and you know, contribute to your own creativity to build them and improve them. We also see in the example that we look at now that uh, the authors use among several examples or experiments that they run. They use one example with the stock price data where they use the open, high, low, close and volume data for one stock series. I use uh, six different stocks with daily closing periods. But other than that, I very much follow their implementation, uh, you know, the setup of the architectures, the training parameters and the like. So it's not specifically optimized for this slightly different use case. So we want to look at the code, then you have two options. Uh, as we mentioned on Google Colab, you have something that's ready to run. And uh, if you want to 
get it from GitHub. There's a new repo that I created that is very similar to uh, what's um, on the on the book repo um, uh, part for chapter 21, but it has much additional commentary. So it's basically uh, the the chapter 21, the parts that are relevant, uh, they are included in the, in the notebooks. So here it is. Oh, let me go back up. So. Here we had the, the, the first uh, notebook, so there are two. We're going to look at how to implement the notebook, um, uh, sorry, how to implement the architecture and to train it. And then we, in the second notebook, are going to look at some techniques that the authors use to evaluate the quality of the results, right? Because you still need to somehow take a look at it, decide is this actually good enough uh, for whatever objectives I have. So we see three examples of that. All right. So now we're ready to dive in. So you see there's more commentary than the, in the original uh, notebook, um, uh, links to the original code, the paper um, and the like. I really encourage you to read the paper if you're really interested in the subject matter. I'm skipping over all the mathematical notations. You'll notice down low that there are several variables with somewhat funky names uh, and all these names are, you know, um, taken or to follow the notation that the authors use in, in the paper, right? So you can compare the equations and the logic, uh, how the authors derive their approach uh, and get from the initial assumptions to their training um, and loss functions um, uh, so that you can kind of follow along. So after the intro and loading the data and setting the path, right, we're going to uh, start designing. First, we're gonna get the data and then we're gonna design the architecture. Right. So to repeat, because it's important, uh, the goal of TimeGAN is to really ensure that uh, we generate time series that not only look the same sort of high level, but that also on a time step by time step basis, exhibit dynamics that we find in real data. And we do this by using uh, supervised learning to uh, basically have an autoregressive process that penalizes the generator if it doesn't really obey what's present in the real series. And that again leads us to these four components, you know, with the two different networks that, that I just mentioned. And here you have more text if you want to revisit after that this, uh, explains the, the different components, right? All revolves around this latent space that is conditioned to, um, to proceed uh, according to the temporal dynamic observed in the source data. Now to make this work, so that, the, so that the networks actually learn these dynamics and are able to generate realistic data, we need to jointly train them. And we'll do this in three phases. So we first need to train the autoencoder since everything revolves around the, the representation of the time series that is learned by, by the, by the autoencoder and used by the generator. And then we're gonna train the supervisor because later in the third phase where we train sort of everything together, uh, we then um, use the, the supervised um, training of the generator in sort of alternating steps with the traditional um, GAN training where the discriminator uh, interacts with the generator, right? So there are three phases. The third phase is much longer. If you run this at the 10,000 steps that the sample uh, uses um, in the original notebook, you'll see that it takes about an hour to run with the GPU. Okay, so high level setup should be clear now. Two different uh, networks with two components each. Things revolve around the, um, the latent space in which we project the time series and we train in three phases to get the different uh, pieces sort of up to 
up to speed as we need them for the joint training, which is sort of the centerpiece. So we need to now do this intensive for two. So there's a few uh, steps we need to follow, which is, of course, get our time series inputs, make some decisions about what kind of sequences do we actually generate, how long should they be, how many time series should they contain, and so forth, and then create the architectural inputs, um, and then the loss functions to kind of set up the training, then actually run it, and then see what we actually get out of this. Good. So, now, the, the data uh, uses as much in, in the book it relies on this Quandle Wiki prices uh, data set that has end of day um, closed prices, um, but also open and so forth, uh, including adjustments. Unfortunately, it ends in 2018 at some point, uh, but nonetheless, it gives us for, for some stocks quite a bit of history. And to keep it simple, um, uh, I use six different stocks from this data set that had a longer history. There's no specific analysis has gone into why I picked those stocks. You know, having enough data was kind of the main criteria, right? So we have Boeing and Caterpillar and Disney and so forth. So that's kind of the inputs, right? So we have a long time series, relatively long with four or four and a half thousand observations starting in 2000 and running until the data set was no longer maintained in 2018. So there's a few parameters, right? So the choices I mentioned, how long should the sequence be? So we're gonna generate sequences with 24 time steps and we're going to you know, follow the pattern of have six parallel time series in the sample. And you know, we need to set the batch size for training. We're gonna use 128. These are the original data, right? So we um, normalize them so that they start at one and we see kind of different, uh, you know, uh, more or less successful uh, stories unfold over time. And you can also see the correlation between them. Some are highly correlated, others are not so much. So there's a bit of diversity in there, right? Be clear, this is a small data set, right? Um, in a real application, you might be interested in using more inputs. Of course, with that would come more training effort, changes to the architecture and so forth, right? So this is a relatively, not exactly a toy data set, I'd say, because it still covers some 18 years, but for sort of you know uh, uh, an application that aims for production-ready data, you would probably want to scale things up a little bit. We're going to scale the data, so we uh, use the min-max scaler, so it's in the zero-one range, and then we're going to create rolling window sequences that are 24 steps long and have uh, an overlap. Right, so we simply roll this forward by by one step each time, which gives us some 4,500 or so sequences in total, and we're going to convert those to TensorFlow data sets so it's easy for the network to, to utilize them. Now, of course, we need to generate random data, and uh, here we're going to use uniform uh, data that are independent of each other over time, and uh, this is also going to then be available as a TensorFlow data set to the generator, which receives that as one of its inputs. Um, Good. So now we're going to start defining the, the, the GAN itself and we keep it relatively simple. Uh, you could of course think about the architecture for each of the different networks. Uh, in this case, we simply use uh, recurrent neural networks and uh, in a minute uh, or sooner define a function that automatically creates these, these uh, units that consist of gated recurrent units. So we're going to use a hidden dimension of 24 units. Uh, all of the networks are gonna have three layers. And um, you know that's basically following what the authors did. Again, you know, in practice, you obviously would want to 
optimize this, um, and especially if you use more data. Relatively simple uh, function that produces the standard uh, autoregressive uh, um, RNN block for each of the, the different components. Uh, the only network that's a little shallower is a supervisor that uses uh, only two layers. Uh, so they get their you know, three layers uh, of the given hidden unit um, size, uh, given number of outputs, depending on where they sit in the architecture. So that varies using sigmoid acti activations here. And then we just generate them, right? So there's an embedder and a recovery. So that's the autoencoder pass with its two component on the one side, three units each. Um, the embedder uh, you know, produces um, 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 projects things into the, in a, into a space with 24 hidden uh, 20 of 24 dimensions, and the recovery uh, projects it back or recovers it to the original um, size. So that's the the first part, and the second part is the adversarial network with the generator and the discriminator and a supervisor that you know we use to discipline the generator to obey those temporal dynamics. So again using the same make RNN function and creating it, creating the networks with the specific um, input and output units you want. The discriminator has only one output because you know it decides whether the output is true or false or real or synthetic. Good, then uh, we can proceed to the, to the training steps uh, so after we define the requisite loss functions. So um, we will train this uh, for, for 10,000 steps or I think, um, Three online was a little more uh, gentle on your time commitment and reduced it to 100 steps. So you can see how it works. And of course, if you have more time, you can use more steps. There are a few uh, hyperparameters in the, in the network, I guess, in gamma and others that, um, that weigh different losses relative to each other. So you can look into the paper what they all are for, because since you have several losses, in some cases, you need to combine them. So there are questions on how which weight should you give each uh, loss, for instance. Um, you also say they don't find like a huge impact of these hyperparameters and propose some sort of baseline values, which I'm using, but the paper reveals all the details. Um, there are multiple loss functions. Uh, they use as inputs uh, the mean squared and binary cross entropy, uh, then with some additional computation. So we define some basic building blocks here that we use. And then we move on to um, actually define the, the uh, architecture of these, of these different networks with their various components, right? So the, the autoencoder has the embedder and the recovery um, uh, uh, part of it. Uh, and here you see it projects um, this into actually non-necessary reduced space, uh, which here is also a result of using relatively small data. So um, use this block of 24 by six uh, um, sort of time series uh, block to project it into a 24 by 24 space. Um, so that's, uh, that's one uh, change here. But you see overall the uh, autoencoder has around 20,000 parameters and uh, you also see this visualized um, below. So that's the autoencoder. If you're familiar with autoencoders, this is just a relatively standard um, setup using RNNs as building blocks. Um, to train this, uh, we use the embedding loss to guide the training, which you know uses the mean squared error between the inputs and the outputs, which you know should resemble each other. Uh, to you know, and we use the custom gradient tape um, option in TensorFlow two to implement custom um, custom training loops. Uh, and we, you know, um, 
use the order um, op uh, called optimizer to define our gradients, which you know um, tweak our outing order setup to faithfully reproduce the inputs as usual, right? So nothing special here in terms of how an order encoder is, is, is designed. And also the training loop, which here runs relatively quickly, uh, follows a relatively standard order encoder set, uh, setup. So this is, uh, if you're familiar again, you know, with order encoders, nothing um, very sort of uh, special happening here. So then we got the supervised training. Uh, so that's phase two, uh, before we uh, jump into the sort of joint training where all parts become active. And here we essentially uh, train the embedder um, so that this, this embedder um, provides the inputs. So we're operating in this latent space and the supervisor receives these inputs and the computer loss. So uh, to ensure that the, the uh, inputs or the representation in latent space follows over time, the, um, the, the patterns observed in the real data. And we use this to um, minimize our supervised loss and apply the gradients to um, to the to the embedder and later to the generator, right? So this again is to ensure that the the gradient representations, uh, the the time series representation in latent space and later in the joint training the generator obey the time series um, uh, dynamic. And then you know once we have set this up, we follow the training loop, um, which here is um, relatively simple in this case. Um, and you know record the loss right so this is kind of the initial uh training of our supervisor so that it can be more effective and has already learned some weights as it enters the joint training which is next so now things get complicated because now we have multiple loss functions uh, and these various pieces of the architecture interacting and i'm going to only outline this in a high level you probably need a little more time than we have today to dive into how all these different pieces um, hang together right so on the one hand, we have a training of the adversarial architecture that is supervised, right? So as I said, the generator is part of the time going to be trained to actually produce synthetic samples that are penalized if they deviate from the temporal dynamics in the real data. So that's what we set up here. And each model has a specific um, output that then enters the loss function. So here's where you'd have to take out your pen and paper maybe and keep track of the different variables. Uh, there's quite a few. Um, so if this is a little much at this point, don't worry once you scroll through this and especially read the paper, this will all become a lot clearer, right? So here's one uh, model then, that's our adversarial supervised model. Um, that basically you know, combines the generator with the supervisor and then the discriminator. And they're used iteratively or in alternating fashion in the main training loop. Then we have an adversarial architecture that operates in the latent space. So this again, now you have to keep track of what Z is, Z is the random inputs, and then it outputs um, the, the, the embedded, the, the synthetic data, but in, in the, um, in the embedding space, so in the, in the usually in reduced dimension space, not in the original time series space, right? So it's like we're not producing um, original images in the normal Gantt training, but we're actually um, producing some sort of dimensionally reduced image to make the training um, uh, maybe faster, but also to uh, you know make sure that it follows certain patterns. Then there's another feature 
uh, in this network, which is an additional loss uh, that can be weighted to which extent you want to, um, to, uh, to incorporate this, which makes sure that the generated data uh, follows certain mean variance patterns, right? Again, you could use different penalties and different metrics, but the idea here is that certain um, patterns that we see in the time series is, uh, is also present in the synthetic data. So that essentially measures the mean and the variance of the real data and compares what we get in the generated data. So there's an additional moment loss on the generator that constrains the, gener uh, the generator with a certain weight to, to, follow these, um, to follow these patterns. And then we have the discriminator. And remember the discriminator gets uh, on the one hand real data and then it gets synthetic data and the job is to decide which is which. Right? So that's the game it plays against the generator. So the, the real data architecture simply receives your real, um, the real time series as inputs, so stock prices. And uh, then there's a synthetic piece where it receives the synthetic uh, inputs from the, from the um, generator. For all of these, we have different, um, we have the atom optimizer. So nothing uh, special, we just need multiple of them because we have different um, network components that, that get optimized. And then we have multiple training steps that then, uh, that then are executed in sequence uh, as we train the entire network. So there's one step that uh, trains the generator. And then I'm not gonna go into detail because it contains all the different components that we just defined. Uh, this I recommend uh, taking a look at, um, at in, in, with, on, on your own time with a little bit more calm at the paper next to you. The important thing is here that the generator loss down here consists of the unsupervised um, uh, generator loss on real data and on, um, on the embedded data. And it also includes the moment loss um, with you know, a weight of 100 um, at this point. You know, all of these are parameters, of course, that you, can, that you can optimize. And we use this, of course, to optimize the weights of the generator network. Then there's an embedding train step, and then it's a discriminator ten time step, uh, train step. And um, ultimately, we run all of this in a big training loop, right? So now we sort of bind all of these things together and actually uh, input the pre-trained uh, pieces that we worked on before, right? So there was the, the supervised part and the embedding part that were already trained uh, during phase one and phase two. And these now join the other components of the network to actually train the generator and so forth uh, to finally produce, hopefully, uh, good synthetic data. And that takes a little bit of time. So this whole training loop with 10,000 steps on a not very current GPU takes around 50 minutes. Um, of course, you could optimize that um, with more recent hardware. So we get the several, we got the different loss uh, values that are produced over time and, and track those. And ultimately after 10,000 steps, we arrive at the great moment that we've been waiting for the last uh, 30 minutes or so, uh, where we see what the, the generated synthetic data actually look like. So uh, now we're gonna produce them um, and then we're going to rescale them so that we can compare them to the original data. You know, the min-max scaler, of course, allows you to go both ways and voila. So here's kind of the, the, uh, the output that this specific setup gives us, and now it's a little bit in the eye of the beholder to say, well, this is really fantastic. I would not have expected this, or it doesn't really look the same way. 
right? So I think this is something that's uh, up for debate. Clearly, certain patterns are present. Then uh, maybe they're a little smoother overall, the synthetic data, you know, but uh, the scales roughly match, uh, of course, the, the, the random inputs um, that the network receives doesn't necessarily align, uh, you know, the, the real series that have been increasing over time, you know, with the levels of the synthetic data and so forth, you know, but this is kind of what we get. And all the big question is, is this, is this useful, good enough, um, or maybe not at all. And that's where we get to the second part where the authors come up with three different ways to evaluate the output. So this point, and I guess we have Q and A, so we'll have uh, some time to maybe go into some of the details or questions. Also, I want to say you, since there's a GitHub repo, if you run this stuff by yourself later, have ideas, feel free to just, you know, put up a GitHub issue, happy to respond to any questions or doubts, or maybe you find some, some bugs in, in the code. Uh, so we can certainly interact after this session as well. So now on to the second part, which is, um, so how could we sort of make sense or answer the question whether this is good enough? And the authors propose based on, of course, prior work already, um, you know, three sort of criteria. One is, is actually the generated data diverse enough or do we have some sort of mode collapse or other phenomena where we may match certain aspects of the time series, but we completely uh, um, eliminate or overlook other aspects of the time series, right? And for that, we're gonna have a visual, um, which is really like a TSNE or a PCA plot of both time series to see, you know, how they compare. So that's number one. Then uh, to which extent are they actually, um, oh, fidelity is the name of the criteria. So to which extent are they actually uh, faithful of the input? And there we're going to train a network to trying to discriminate or to classify the time series as uh, real or synthetic, similar to the discriminator that we just used in the training process. And ultimately, and I would argue that that's what we really care about is could actually the synthetic data be used to train a model that actually predicts real data, right? That's kind of what we started with at the outset and that's what we're gonna try to achieve in the end, right? So that's a predictive, predictive score where we train a model on the synthetic data and then test it on the real data. So we're gonna recover you know, some inputs, get the data back. So, and then we use, first of all, something relatively straightforward. We just uh, project the data into a two-dimensional space using PCA and um, the stochastic uh, neighbor um, embedding and voila, that's what we get as results. And again, you know, this is a qualitative output. So you can argue is this, really um, diverse enough, is it similar enough? Clearly, uh, there is some resemblance between, you know, the output, uh, the synthetic output and the real series. But then if you look at TSNE, it also doesn't sort of cover all the wiggles and all the, the different aspects of it. So it's not necessarily um, maybe as diverse as the real data and maybe the smoothness of the time series that you saw displayed, they, uh, they may be highlighting or reflected here, you know, so that there's some limitation and what we were able to generate with this relatively small example, right? So don't be disappointed, but uh, maybe consider this as a sort of, uh, not necessarily a successful proof of concept, but as an implementation of an architecture that maybe gets us some step, some steps towards um, a useful output. So to get this more quantitative and to get um, some more hard effects together, how uh, useful this is, we can simply, um, 
train a model to uh, distinguish between the two data sources, right? And then we can do this on the normal uh, train test set approach. So we're going to uh, uh, create, you know, take a certain piece of, of the rolling sequences to input and then leave the remainder uh, as, as a test set. <coughs> Excuse me. And then would like to see that the network is not able to distinguish between um, what is true and what is false, right? Because in that case, there would be a faithful representation. So we're going to use, a, again, a, um, um, a recurrent neural network um, uh, with six units, a relatively small unit that uh, network that gets these uh, series of inputs. And then as trained to use either um, area under the curve or accuracy to distinguish between real and false data. So we train the data and uh, train the network and evaluate the results on the on the um, on the test data, the test label. We see that if we look at the test set, that there's a classification error of around 56%, which is almost like flipping a coin, which suggests that the model is not really able to distinguish between true and false false result, which is a little um, not necessarily unexpected because to some extent that was what the adversarial training was supposed to produce. Um, it's a little odd as the AUC is 0 0.136. Uh, ideally, you know, we have 0.5, which would be the flipping the coin scenario. So of course, if you predicted the reverse, there would actually be good results. But I think that's something to investigate a little further which um, I actually haven't done. So, but this is the setup how you would kind of say, let's see if, you know, if we um, train uh, the data on, on both types of, of series and train it to predict between real and, um, and synthetic data, would it actually be able to distinguish between those on the test set? And it doesn't really look like it can. So in terms of a faithful representation um, that seems to be meeting the, the criteria. And ultimately to what we really care about, which is, so if we take um, synthetic data as inputs, would that actually allow us to uh, make useful predictions on real data? So we're going to, again, grab our data, get the real data and get the, um, get the synthetic data. So we have equal um, inputs um, here. And then we're gonna select certain subsets of those, um, randomly picked as usual. So we're going to have some real training data and the real the corresponding real label, and then we're going to have real test data and the real test labels. So now we're going to have that for real data and for synthetic data. So both inputs and and uh, the corresponding outputs. Where the outputs is always the last point in the time series. So the goal is you get the first twenty three steps of the time series, and the question then is how well can you predict the the outcome, the last point in the time series. Again, we use a relatively small uh, recurrent neural network and uh, measure the, use the mean absolute error to kind of figure out how good the, the net network performs. From here on, relatively straightforward, um, real and synthetic uh, training, right? So we want to compare how well does the model perform if we train it on synthetic and then test it on real, or if we train it on real and then test it on real. So. And if we go through the next steps here, we ultimately get to the results. So on the left, uh, you have the result if you train the model on synthetic and then test it on real data. And um, 
again, the train and the test set. So test set, of course, is a little higher the error. And on the right, you have what would sort of be the baseline expectation if you actually train on real and then also test on real. And curiously, uh, this is on a log scale, the result's a little better, actually. The error is actually a little lower if we train on synthetic data. So important point, though, is you clearly uh, get some benefit out of training on, um, on the synthetic data. Right, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect that. So, this is kind of where we stand with this uh, with this approach at this point. So, there's an interesting new architecture. Um, maybe let me go back to the presentation because I have some closing remarks here. Right. So, so what have we done? So, we use um, use a paper not developed by folks at Finance, by the, the lab actually works on on uh, I think also medical data or bio. Um, uh, bioinformatics. So the idea was to come up with a model that produces synthetic time series data that uh, pays more attention to the uh, correlation between time series at the same point, but also over time. So that was kind of the goal that was uh, that the authors set for themselves, and they came up with this architecture that uses this interesting uh, representation learning to come up with um, with um, well, let's see some. Okay, that uses the um, interesting embedding space with the supervised uh, sort of penalty, you know, that encourages the networks to follow the, the timing over time. So then we use an experiment uh, with only six stock prices and relatively small um, uh, series, 24 steps uh, over time and six years in parallel to see how well that performs. Uh, mainly a test though, how can we create the architecture and temple flow too. And then what do the results show? And um, I would say this is certainly not perfection, but it is also not uh, something that would suggest this doesn't work. You know, I think there is quite a bit of uh, potential here because there's of course a lot that you could do to enhance the setup, right? From going bigger to enhancing and maybe creating more specialized architectures. So uh, this was a relatively simple uniform approach and uses the same setup for all uh, four or even five different networks uh, components that were part of the training, right? So multiple things that you can do to build on this basic framework, you know, all of which I think justifies pursuing this a little further. And I hope that the material that you have uh, in the GitHub repo uh, encourages you to do so. At this point with uh, seven minutes to go, if we're strict with time, uh, I would say maybe we have time for some questions and I'm also happy to go a little over, should there be many questions? Oh, thank you, Stefan. This was, this was an absolute pleasure and uh, apologies. I probably took a few minutes trying to get this whole, you know, streaming thing going. Uh, we do have a couple of questions, but there were a couple of questions on how do we access the slides. So I'm just gonna walk through um, would you mind uh, uh, transferring the host privileges back to me? So if you click the top three. Oh yes, of course. Sorry. Okay, so I think I should be able to do it now. <clears throat> so when you go into for people who are new to the Q Academy, um, basically what we have been doing is the last fifteen weeks we have had various lectures and we are making all of them available for free on the Q Sandbox. So if you go into qacademy.com and uh, if you filter on the topics and we have the Q lecture series, so you will be able to access all the lectures, the slides, 
and the associated code. And what we have done is uh, Steven's code. Uh, Steven shared the GitHub link. You can go directly to the GitHub and get the code from there. Or if you want to access the slides, if you come to uh, the page, which I linked on the chat window, uh, you should be able to like get the slides. And also, if you say run on QSandbox, basically what we've done is we have uh, put this on Google Colab. So you don't have to install anything. You'll directly have a working uh, version of the code. And we've just basically bundled both the version, both part one and part two of the code. So you can share it and also put the data on Amazon. That way you should be able to like run through the Jupyter notebook without having to install anything. Uh, for, um, we're just leveraging the Google Colab's free GPU, but if, if you, in case you're interested in trying it out on your own data with a uh, larger GPU, do let us know because the QSandbox is meant to try out experiments on various aspects and we'll be able to like help you with setting it up so that we can learn, uh, run larger scale experiments. Now, uh, one other thing I wanted to also mention was uh, in order to access it, uh, let me just share the screen um, and um, if you go to the page, you will have the various um, um, slides. And also at the end, I put in a code, a special coupon code for you. And basically what that will allow you to do is uh, it will get access to all the prior lectures also. So you should be able to access not only today's lecture, but also the prior lecture. So the code is QU. F-A-L-L school, so you should be able to try that. So uh, before we go to questions, I just want to let you know, next week we're going to have uh, Jakob Weinstock, who's also a CFHR holder, by the way, and he was the CTO at uh, a couple of different organizations. We're not going to talk about alternative data and uh, access to various aspects of alternative data uh, in the machine learning world. How do you think about you know different kinds of data sets? So we did have Alexander Daniev and um, uh, Saeed Amin talked about alternative data in a prior session. We're going to continue the discussion uh, in the next week. So uh, without further ado, I will um, uh, you know, see if we can uh, talk about a couple of questions. So this was an excellent presentation, uh, Stephen. So uh, one thing, um, you know, uh, there, is, uh, there is a question from Gautier about, would you have time to try this approach on say 100 plus stocks? to see if it captures cross-correlation structures. This is something we discussed when he was presenting too. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I, I'm interested in making time for this. Um, then there's real life, which <laughs> interferes with that. Uh, I'm very much interested in that. It's clear that, um, that as you work with the code, you see there are multiple ways to question or maybe improve on how things are uh, being done. Scale is, of course, the, the first, right? You know, it's 24 time steps really kind of, you know, the way we should be approaching this. Shouldn't it be six series or more? You know, so absolutely, uh, I will, I can promise that I will try <laughs> so to find the time. So if I do, uh, go to, I know, of course, where you are, I think we're connected on LinkedIn, so I'll definitely ping you if I find something. Absolutely. Perfect. Then uh, Rick has another question. I thought one of the constraints was that the second moment of the synthetic and the real data sets were the same. Uh, however, the standard deviation at the close of the thing, it's very specific to the code, seemed to be much smaller than the synthetic data sets. Was it constraining on the standard deviation of the close instead? Is the question. But I don't know if you want to take it offline, if you have to look at the code and get back to it. 
Yeah, that's, I, I'm, I'm not exactly, so for instance, this moment loss, I'm also not exactly happy. I'm also not clear the weights make uh, perfect sense there. Um, so this is, these are all things I haven't investigated, but that's exactly where you would start looking at uh, potential improvements. Uh, it's clearly the, the, there's some smoothness in the synthetic series that is you know, not necessarily what we would like to see. Absolutely. So another question from Sarah. Uh, have you done this on a scale to generate a whole universe of stocks instead of the six features? Whether I've done it, sorry. Maybe, maybe an index or uh, S&P 500 or Dow 30. So, sorry, I didn't, can you just repeat? Whether I've used a broader universe of stocks or? I think it's like, can you generate a whole universe of stocks? Um, so in theory, yes, right? So this is, the, the idea of the embedding uh, space, right, I think becomes even more relevant as you actually scale this up, right? Because we're not using uh, sort of a very complex input here, right? Because it's only six time series with 24 steps. The idea of this embedding space is a little bit like the, the dynamics over time are really only driven by, by a smaller number of factors. There's actually another book, another uh, topic in the book, which talks about this autoencoder paper uh, by Brian Kelly and others from AQR, which also uses dimensionality reduction to identify risk factors in a nonlinear fashion and then does interesting things with those. So clearly as you scale up the universe of inputs, uh, the, embed the embedding space becomes more useful. So the assumption is that you could do precisely that. You know, um, you could maybe do all commodities and, you know, maybe uh, you could also do others, so you, could, you know, so there's no limitation necessarily. This is more like a toy example. And you saw that even that takes about an hour to run. So mm -hmm. you would have to work on the sort of the implementation aspect as well to make this viable, you know, if you go bigger. Absolutely. Another question is how does non-stationarity in prices impact generated data? Um, so the idea is that by capturing these transitions over time, uh, you would sort of be able to incorporate this, right? Because you don't constrain them per se to sort of be limited within that. That's where the mean and the standard deviation uh, aspect comes in, where I'm not sure whether that's the ideal uh, sort of constraint on what we observe in stock prices, right? So one might be thinking about what distributional measures or other constraints uh, would be a better way to to capture these, in this case, clearly non-stationary uh, input. But the idea, of course, to capture these transitions from you know T1 to T2 and so forth would be, of course, to kind of uh, implement or re, uh, recover or synthesize these non-stationary aspects at the same time. And you, it seems that the the prize data that is are produced by the network they do exhibit such uh, such patterns as well. Absolutely. To the extent you can see that with 24 time steps, right? I mean, Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, so Melissa has a question. Um, does this process necessarily produce synthetic data generation data series which are smooth, smoother than the original training series? If so, how helpful are they for further analysis? Um, I mean, maybe it's a smoothness that's good because it filters out noise, maybe, right? So this you would have to investigate. Clearly, I would uh, think that as an input for further work, we would something that really to regenerate the original series and not some um, you know, smoother that somehow is created by the network where we don't know whether that's desirable. So I would argue that scale and some modifications to the architecture 
maybe ways to produce somewhat more realistic series. Right? The goal was to show that with a relatively simple setup, you do actually get quite some steps in those directions. Uh, this is not the goal. This is this is the solution you should go with. We're done with uh, the, we have solved the problem of synthetic data generation and finance, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I think it kind of relates to the next question too, which is uh, looking at the plots, uh, the synthetic data generation was outperforming the real. Often the problem with MLM trading is that the results are as good as that of the data. Would it be possible that these networks could generate synthetic data that are not exactly compared to that of the real counterparts, but are generated in such a way to help identify parameters of interest in real data during forward testing? That's the question. Um, can I actually read the question because that was a longer question. Yeah. Well, I see. So often the problem in machine learning in trading is that the results are as good as that of the data. Would it be possible that these networks could generate synthetic data that are not exactly comparable to their real counterparts, but are generated in such a way to help identify parameters of interest in real data during forward testing? Um, so the first part, uh, um, are there for shortcomings and the similarity or the faithful reproduction of the actual patterns over time? I think we've clearly seen that there are limitations, right? Which again, you know, I would say, you know, may very well be due to the limited input scale and other shortcomings of the architecture and the parameters and some of the constraints that it uses, right? So clearly whether there are benefits of the specific data generated at this point that would sort of facilitate um, training or identify other aspects, I'm not sure. The goal of the embedding space is to capture sort of the relevant transitional dynamics in a smaller uh, dimension. That has some value that you know, would make it possible to begin with to, to scale kind of the exercise up to hundreds, thousands, or even more stocks you know, with also longer time series, right? Because you don't want to backtest the strategy on 24 time steps, right? So the whole, both in the time dimension and sort of the universe, things would have to be substantially bigger to be useful, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Cool. So I think we are at 104. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Stefan, for spending your afternoon with us uh, or in the morning. You know, you probably have one more hour to get to the afternoon. Um, so yeah, it's just noon, exactly. I also <laughs> want to, you know, call out that, um, if you are interested in experiments like these and other experiments, please do check out Stefan's book. It's uh, algorithmic. Uh, uh, so it's a really fat book, the second edition, Machine Learning <laughs> Algorithmic Trading. And uh, his GitHub site has all the code associated with it. And uh, on the page I shared with you, you have uh, a link to Stefan's LinkedIn profile too. So please do connect with him if you have any questions. And uh, we will look forward to having you back at the next lecture of the Quant University Fall School next week, talking about alternative data and how APIs are facilitating it. Thanks so much for spending your afternoon with us and I wish you a wonderful rest of the week. Take care, bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for today's session of the Q Podcast Show. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit us at quantuniversity.com for upcoming events courses and to continue the discussion.